life is a feast. But it doesn't have to stop when we find we're the only one at the table. This podcast is for those who feel like they are going it alone in any area of life, whether by choice or chance, for days or years. Throughout this series, we're going to talk about how we got to the table, hearkening back to middle school math class and taking tips from a whale. We're going to talk about making the most of the feast, no matter what's on your own life menu, and about the superpowers that you can build and take with you when, eventually, you're sharing the meal with others. I'm Whitney, and we'll be leading you through a bi-weekly three-course feast of perspective, empathy, and solutions to give you the confidence and virtual companionship as you navigate being a party of one in this crowded world. This is Table for One. Episode 1. Postcard for a Whale. Hi, I'm Whitney, and I'm so excited to kick off this first episode of Table for One. How many of you have had an internal reaction of, aww, when you're at a restaurant and see someone dining alone? Probably most. And how many of you have been completely comfortable asking for a table for one for yourself at a sit-down restaurant? Probably just a fraction, right? This podcast is named after that pinnacle of perceived social vulnerability of being openly alone and lonely in a public setting. But we're going to talk about much more than that. I've noticed that the comfort level and social representation of one being alone or two being lonely are heavily skewed towards separate and very specific demographics. When we talk about single people, the first persona that pops into our heads are likely people in their 20s or 30s, maybe with some fatal flaw that keeps them from starring in a real-life Hallmark romance. But when we talk about lonely people, we might envision people who are in their 70s or 80s, who've outlived a partner and maybe have nothing on their plate for the day besides the game show. But why aren't we talking about the different layers and crossovers of these two states of experience that all of us are going to go through at some point in our lives? Throughout this podcast, we're going to call this hybrid onlyness and crossover a lot between the states of being at a table for one literally and figuratively. Whether we've had a table reservation for days, months, or years, it's really a result of conditions and not a life conviction. I want to talk about how to normalize the experience and find ways of coping while also finding the joy and opportunity in it. As we're going to discover, this topic isn't just for you folks who don't have romantic plans tonight. This is for everyone who's experiencing any gap of fulfillment in their social relationships or confusion about why you're not feeling more complete. Secondly, why should you care about listening to me? I'm not some famous influencer with an agenda. My closest brush with fame was winning my elementary school spelling bee. I'm just a typical girl who is going through the experience of my own table for one in several ways and only recently realized that there may be others who need to hear about it. I mean, this stuff comes from personal experience and not a degree. And while it's great to hear from others who've got it all figured out, I think a lot of benefit can be had from hearing from us who are currently navigating the raw, real experience of it. So you've got me and some of the interesting stories, tactics, and tidbits that I'm collecting to hopefully spark something in your own lives. But I'm also excited about learning from you. Hopefully this podcast will be a platform that lets others feel comfortable coming forward and joining the dialogue too. So what can you look forward to? With all episodes, you can expect a three-course meal at your table for one, an appetizer segment kicking off with some of the stats and facts about the week's topic that will hopefully pique your interest and appetite. This will be followed by an entree segment, getting into the meatier, more emotional side of the issues. There's going to be some comedy, some tragedy, 
But mostly, reality and empathy in this course as we look at the deeper side of the experience of onlyness in the context of the week's topic. Then finally, we'll finish off our meal with the good stuff, dessert. Or in other words, a quick goodie, exercise, or resource to help your table for one journey for the week ahead. And of course, give a chance to hear some of our listeners' perspectives. I'm kicking off this podcast specifically on February 14th because I know some of you are in your PJs popping open a bottle of wine or two to get through it. And I'm not asking you to ditch the robe or even get off the couch yet, but at least put on stilettos while you're with us because this is step one of seeing yourself as worthy of a life feast that doesn't require a plus one. I hope you come away from each podcast feeling better equipped to appreciate whatever it is on your own unique life menu, knowing that your table for one is really a collective of people across the country and around the world experiencing similar things as you. I'm hungry. Let's dig in. To get things rolling, let's talk about the key thing forcing people into a table for one or state of onlyness in the first place, and that's limited, active, meaningful, and reliable relationships. This can mean friends, coworkers, confidants, mentors, romantic partners, family members, academic colleagues. Today especially, being in a state of onlyness or lonely can often seem like the allegory of drowning in an ocean because of thirst. There seem to be great relationships available everywhere, across the street, across the world, and virtually on one of dozens of social media platforms or dating apps. We hear people laughing in groups together outside our window, people making phone calls to check in with friends on the train. We hear about colleagues having full summer calendars because of wedding season and all the parties they were invited to. But finding friends, lovers, shorter long-term life companions can seem somehow farther out of reach for many more than at any other time in history. And the pandemic has obviously compounded that for the experienced or brought a rude awakening to those who've never been on their own. Let's step back at the bigger picture for some context. A well-known psychologist from Oxford, Robin Dunbar, defined a Dunbar number through his research which is the number of stable relationships people are cognitively able to maintain at any one time, around 150 to 200. For me personally, who only has maybe two people I feel like I could call at any time to pour out my heart to or go out for tapas on a weekend with, my initial reaction was, well, that makes me a loser. But further research from his book, which came out in the UK in summer 2021 called Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships, gave me some perspective. This book talks about the circles of friendship, which, looking like an archer's bullseye, identifies seven levels of friendship, starting from the center, the intimate friends, where most people have one and a half, example, a romantic partner, as their closest companion, followed by a ring dedicated to close friends, which is around five people, a third ring of best friends at around 15 people, and so on towards the seventh outer ring of friendship as known faces, about 5,000 people that we all have met or recognize at some point in our lives. Of course, there can be a wider or fluctuating range of these numbers based on the individual, but what is the culminating moment that grants a person access into one of these inner circles especially? Dunbar's book has some really interesting insight into this, but for many of us, the inner rings of these circles are underpopulated, which brings us back to our states of loneliness. These circles of friendship speak to the average human experience over years, but let's see what some of the numbers say about being on our own or lonely at any specific time. First, let's talk about the population of who lives alone. While it isn't necessarily a fair assessment to directly compare these two data points, living conditions certainly contribute to a higher vulnerability of experiencing loneliness. In the U.S., the share of adults who live alone more than doubled over the last 50 years. In 2020, that number, according to Statista, was 36 million people, or 11% of the population. 
We're not going to go into the details in this episode, but of course, there's a wide range of reasons people live alone. And that can include access to services, cultural norms, economic opportunities, urbanization even, ratio of women in the labor workforce, and on and on. Every year, the U.S. Census completes a report on America's families and living arrangements. The latest November 2021 publication shows that 55% of single-family households are women. Of these total households, 77% are white people. An article from The Hill points out that only about 5% of adults below age 25 years lives alone, but this doubles to 12% for ages 25 to 64, nearly doubles again to 22% for those 65 to 74, and then jumps to approximately 33% for people who are 75 and older. Let us know if you think this is surprising. Of course, this can vary by region, and when you look globally, it's a completely different story, with more than half of Indians living in extended family homes and only 2% living alone, for example, or Denmark and Finland, where more than 40% of people live alone. Second, let's look at the statistics about loneliness specifically. As mentioned before, the perception of loneliness is often associated with elderly people. A recent study by Social Pro Now, which shares results from many studies, shows that while 44% of baby boomers sometimes or always feel lonely, 65% of millennials said the same thing. In 2019, 47% of people felt their relationships weren't meaningful, and 61% said they felt lonely. A 2020 study cited 9% of Americans didn't feel like they had friends or relatives they could count on. Interestingly, a separate study says that 63% of men felt lonely compared to 58% of women. Of course, the pandemic has shifted the experience for many as well, along with other factors, but these numbers show that this is clearly not a gender-specific or even age-specific issue. Together, these stats give a glimpse that we need to shift our awareness of who is being impacted by loneliness broadly, but also in our own circles closer to home. Back in the old days of Facebook, the relationship status feature on your profile gave others an indicator as to whether your innermost Dunbar friendship circle was occupied, but I don't entirely know whether some of my geographically farther friends that I think are single are living alone or have roommates, for example. In today's platforms, your outer circles of friendship are alluded to by how many followers or friends you have, or how many people like your posts. But this is all reading between the lines. We all know someone who loves to collect hundreds or even thousands of friends or contacts online, but in reality, doesn't interact with any of them at a deep level that offers a relationship of substance. Even people we think we may know well may not give clear signals about their state of onlyness so that we can be more supportive friends ourselves. Why? Because no one wants to talk about this uncomfortable topic and friend matchmaking apps are a niche market yet to take off. We don't want to stand on a street corner with a cardboard sign asking people to be our friend or to fill out an application for a relationship gap in our life. It's something we go through in secret and often feel ashamed of, thinking that it's a reflection of us somehow not being worthy of the relationships that we'd like to have present in our lives, but in spite of our best efforts, are not able to manufacture at a factory. However we got there, all of us at some time will experience the gap in meaningful, active, reliable relationships that contribute to the state of onlyness. I had a minor revelation with one of the people I consider in my best friend circle this past year. When returning to her home country after a long trip to the U.S. where her adult children live, she was required to go through the two-week COVID quarantine and stay at a hotel in her city during the time. Before she flew out, her daughters had sent along care packages for her to open every day while she was in the hotel. She set up family pictures around the hotel room. Her husband, though only a few miles away, delivered flowers and cupcakes to her through the concierge. A couple of her girlfriends even got on the roof of an adjacent building and view from her hotel window to dance and hold up posters of support for her. 
Despite all this, she had moments of tears and being overwhelmed by not knowing what to do in the isolation. Now, I love my friend, but my observation of this two-week experience that she documented on social media left me completely indignant. In my head, she was married, had caring children, had close friends showing an absolute outpouring of love. She didn't get to feel alone, from my perspective, for two brief weeks, when I'd easily gone six months straight without a single human hug, seeing my family, having a meal with another person, or anyone to report to every night to talk about my day. I was really bitter. But... I realized that by chance, I had earned my stripes as a seasoned veteran in my journey of loneliness, and that also by chance, she was the rookie on the first day of basic training experiencing the trauma of it for the first time. I learned I needed to expand my empathy, even if I hadn't yet experienced the full depth of empathy from others in my circle, who I wish would have come to my rescue at certain points of loneliness. When I've been thinking through this concept of loneliness, I've come up with an approach to help identify its levels, so I can better identify my own state and better recognize the states of others. Now, get in your time machine and go back to 8th grade math class because we're going to map out what I'm calling the landscapes of loneliness on a lovely quadrant graph. Side note, isn't graph paper the best? (laughs) So on each of the axes, we're going to identify a specific social condition. On one end of the y-axis, we're lonely and have an idea why, or of the tools that we might be able to use to fix it. At the other end of the axis, we're lonely and don't know why or what tools are available. At one end of the x-axis, we're alone, whether by choice or not. And at the other end of the axis, we're accompanied, whether by choice or not. Okay, now we're going to check out the scenery in each quadrant, starting from the top right, where we are both alone for whatever reason and lonely, with some idea of why you feel that way and what it would take to fix it. I'm calling this quadrant the tiny island. Here, you are alone and lonely, and see those potential deeper relationships on the mainland, And now you need to look up YouTube videos to build a boat out of the pile of wood next to you, but just haven't done it yet. An example of this is someone who has maybe moved to a new country for work. You're alone, but you know you need to learn the language, for example, to make connections that solve that loneliness. Going clockwise on our graph, the second landscape is at the intersection of being lonely and having an idea why, but while being accompanied. I'm calling this the mountain peaks. You are accompanied by a person or people, all standing on top of their own peaks, and you can see each other and maybe shout at each other, but know that there is a significant vertical distance to hike down and up again to be on the same planes as each other. An example of this is maybe a couple who've been married for 10 or so years and maybe grown apart. You cohabitate, but have grown in different directions and know that to be on the same level again could take maybe months of therapy. Continuing on, the third landscape is having that accompaniment of people, but not understanding why you're feeling lonely among them. This is called the Redwood Forest. Here, you are all trees standing closely together, but you don't have the tools to see underground to see the soil conditions or why some roots connect to other trees and not others. An example of this might be a group of friends who always meet for brunch. Even though it seems like you're bringing the same qualities to the group as others, others appear to be more connected and you just can't see below the surface to figure out why. Finally, we're traveling into our fourth landscape, which may feel like the most difficult to bear at the intersection of being alone and also being lonely without knowing why or having the tools. I'm calling this the Arctic Tundra. Here, it is white in all directions with no horizon for you to navigate to a place of social comfort. On top of that, it's freaking cold. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have experienced this landscape. An example might be someone who has maybe just gone through a breakup and are living on their own for the first time, but are using the wrong tools to find the connection that will be meaningful and provide companionship again. 
They're sending Morse code instead of knowing how to find the right dating apps or clubs that attract the kind of people that they're likely to make a genuine connection with. Now, this exercise isn't scientific by any means, but hopefully helps you plot out in your mind generally what your own loneliness landscape might look like. Check out the Table for One Instagram for a visual of this diagram and some potential tools for surviving a night or months or years in any of these landscapes. But as the axes imply, we first have to figure out how we got into the landscapes before we can figure out the right tools to use to get out. While psychologists have identified several kinds of loneliness, they, along with the reasons that we find ourselves alone, are rarely the result of a singular experience. We have to ask the tough question of why am I here and how did I get here? We may resort to the classics like I always pick the wrong people, but deeper down, maybe we're scared that people stop needing us as much as we needed them. Maybe we find the complexities of navigating relationships with different personalities overwhelming and can only cope by retreating to the safety of solitude. Maybe our parents or other close family members have left us. Maybe we just don't get the life choices of our children or siblings or find a way to connect. Maybe we're the odd man out in a community with specific beliefs or cultural practices. Maybe we evolved out of certain relationships as our priorities changed. Maybe we eventually developed long-term grudges over negative experiences and began building walls. Maybe we don't think we can live up to the expectations that we think others have of us and have closed ourselves off. When we're not able to get at the root of our questions, we turn to bold solutions, or at worst, inaction. I want to point out two extreme examples of selective companionship as aversion to loneliness or solitude and selective solitude. There's a growing market for renting a girlfriend or boyfriend that mostly gained visibility when it took off in Japan in the 90s. This country has long been known for having some of the highest suicide rates in the world, and a lack of genuine human connections certainly can play a part in these numbers. Renting a person isn't anything like an escort service. This is simply about having the buffer of a companion during socially awkward situations like a friend's wedding, or just having someone to talk to for a few hours when there doesn't seem to be any other option. In some cases, you can even rent a parent or other family member through these services. But people are willing to pay for companionship when they are in a vulnerable social situation, but are not able to understand or control the factors that contributed to their state of onlyness. On the other hand, also in Japan, is a phenomenon of evaporating people. Annually, these are thousands of people who self-disappear from society and finish the rest of their lives in cities that have names but which aren't spoken of and are not on any maps. Life carries on here in these places and people find jobs somehow through the mafia, but all in isolation. Why do the evaporating people do this? It's because they don't know how to exist in relationships where they feel they haven't lived up to perceived expectations, whether it's a divorce, a financial mishap, or something else. The difficulty of penning down an answer in the questions we ask ourselves is because onlyness isn't really quantifiable, and there's no clear point of entry or exit. Furthermore, the shift between levels of onlyness isn't always an abrupt transition. How we arrived at our table for one is such a unique journey. As with any life milestone, positive or not, winning a contest, homelessness, landing a competitive job, getting a tattoo, the outcome is usually the result of a complex combination of chance, timing, choices, social structures, lifestyle preferences, history, and even technology. As someone who grew up with five siblings and felt relatively popular and socially balanced in my school years, I certainly never expected to have solitude and loneliness to be at the forefront of daily thought in my 30s and 40s, but I'm gradually understanding how moving approximately 25 times in my life, having an innate wanderlust, sometimes choosing cheesecake over treadmills, having too many hobbies, battling mental health and anxiety, 
And being on the other side of two divorces are just some of the unique and sometimes indirect factors that have facilitated a deep sense of loneliness in several areas of my life. Has this journey been easy and am I done? Hell no. Has it helped improve my clarity and becoming a more grateful and compassionate person so the quality of the parts of my life that I can't control is higher? Absolutely. What is it that we're most afraid of in being labeled as lonely or in living or experiencing some level of loneliness? When I was married in my early 20s, my husband at the time had commented about going to the movies alone one day while I was at work. He and I had different work schedules at the time. And at first I was completely offended and upset and perplexed because <gasps> choosing to have an outing alone when you are married is just not something you do. My parents never had extracurricular activities or errands that they did independently of each other. And that was the perception of normal that I had been raised with. But what else have conditioned me to feel that response? And what is it that we're afraid of in going it alone anyway, even if just for a few hours to a movie? We've been hit at it subconsciously from all sides. We hear tragic and emotionally charged songs like All By Myself or One Is The Loneliest Number. There's also a reason that isolation has been one of the most severe forms of punishment in prisons. The former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote, Loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan, similar to caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than that associated with obesity. We are scared to death of what will happen if it happens to us, this loneliness. In addition to the health impacts, there are also a lot of subliminal messages that we receive in other areas of our life that punish us for being on our own or lonely. We'll talk about this in future episodes. But I think what we're most scared of and can really relate to the most is the experience of the 52 Hertz whale, also called the loneliest whale in the world. A documentary came out in summer 2021 about this whale that was discovered by the U.S. Navy in the 90s when it was mistaken for a submarine. This particular whale was singing at a frequency of 52 hertz that no other whale species was known to sing at, and therefore he was believed to have been swimming alone for decades, likely without receiving a response to his song. Most other whales communicate at 20 hertz. The description of the whale on Inverse, an online science publication, says, While he lives among other whales, he's also apart from them. This whale sings in a frequency that others can't understand. If they do respond, their words probably sound like garbled noise. Meaningful communication is impossible. Naturally, this whale's story resonated with people everywhere, and the equivalent of virtual postcards to the whale were seen all over social media comments. People wanting to find a way to sing back to the whale, shedding tears for the whale, internalizing it into experience in the human context. I think our ultimate fear of the onlyness is that lack of reflection like a mirror through another person that validates our uniqueness and our humanity. Whether we are alone physically with no one to hear us, or are in relationships where something is lost in translation, we feel less sure of our path and whether it could be decades before someone joins us again. But our experience doesn't have to be tragic. Spoiler alert. 10 years since being heard by scientists, the 52 Hertz whale was found again, at least by sonar. And more excitedly, this time a second whale of a similar frequency was also discovered. We are all at some stage in that journey of being found or completed by deep, meaningful relationships, and we will be found if we keep sending out our song at our authentic frequency and keep listening for others on our frequency. I'll share one more quick story. Speaking of solitary confinement earlier, I want to relay the experience of Albert Wood Fox, a man who had been formerly involved with the Black Panthers in Angola and who spent most of his 44 years in the Louisiana State Penitentiary after being wrongly imprisoned for murder. For each of those days, he lived in a 6 by 9 foot concrete cell pushed to the absolute mental limits of isolation. 
Because of the intense psychological damage that prolonged isolation can induce, a Guardian article that tells Albert's story references that solitary confinement set by international rules by the UN should never extend beyond 15 days. But after more than 15,000 days, Albert made it through to the other side and explained that one of his coping mechanisms was to write a list of what he would do when he was free. And as of the next day, immediately after his release, he started checking off those items, one of which included visiting Yosemite National Park. But during his solitude, he also studied law. He organized math tests and spelling bees and taught another inmate to read. He says, We used the time to develop the tools that we needed to survive to be part of society and humanity, rather than becoming bitter and angry and consumed by a thirst for revenge. The big takeaway here is that we don't have to be imprisoned by loneliness and self-restrict the abundance of life experiences because we don't want to do them alone or worse, share them with others who make us feel lonely. To me, writing a list of things that we desire for a life that we don't yet have is a powerful exercise. It helps us confront that whatever unsatisfactory part of the journey that we're in is really just a transition to something else that we have the choice to shift. In coming episodes, we're going to talk through making the most of that journey in the meantime. Now, for those that know me, I don't like to have any meal without dessert, and we want to end on a sweet note. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, these chats were designed to highlight that we really are a network of tables for one through this virtual community. Thinking of our 52 Hertz whale, I want to formally invite you to be part of our Table for One pod. Your voice and perspective matters here, and I'd love for you to reflect for a minute and share here or email your comments about a specific moment or experience where you felt like you were really going it alone in any area of your life. Tell us about that revelation. It's very likely that others have experienced a similar moment. While we can't send a postcard to the whale, we can certainly use our experiences to tune into others that we recognize may also be swimming on a solo journey and provide a brief message of reassurance or comfort to them. This week, consider sending a just-because message to anyone in one of your seven circles of friendship. I came across a great company online that lets you customize a mail-a-fun postcard, even with confetti if you wanted it, for just a few dollars. Or just send a text. Every little effort that you put outside of yourself will help you feel more connected. This isn't anything revolutionary. The point is that no matter which loneliness landscape you're in, there aren't any bailouts. Any deeper relationship worth having on your inner circles of friendship always began with something small and has to begin with you. Thanks for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or join the Instagram page at tableforone.pod where you'll find a takeaway box of tidbits and resources shared from each episode along with other fun content. And remember that no matter who is or isn't at your table, there's a feast available for you. See you in two weeks.